The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman, and today I'm joined by Paul Holmes. Hello, Paul. Good morning, or whatever time it is in Hong Kong. It's a time of crisis, but anyway. Hey, listen, we have offices in the US and the UK and Hong Kong, and sure, right now you're ahead in terms of crisis, but Mm -hmm. we're catching up as quickly as we can, so... Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real race to the bottom everywhere. No kidding. A, hey, at least we're not Brazil. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Um, no kidding. But let's talk today about your ultra long read. I don't think the word long read does it justice. <laughs> I get carried away sometimes. Well, actually, I, I read it and I thought it, it didn't feel like an 8,000 word story. Um, I wrote it. It felt exactly like an 8,000-word story. Actually, it felt to me more like a 7,000-word story. So, you know, it really flew by. (laughs) No, it really did fly by. It's, it's I think, a a really important uh, long read on our website, obviously. Uh, The headline is, Can America's Top CEOs Save Capitalism? And in particular, it refers to the Business Roundtable's new statement, on the purpose of a corporation, um, which to many of us in the public relations industry, that I guess the, the thinking espoused in this new statement is, is not a huge surprise. It, it calls on companies to put the interests of society and employees at the same level as shareholders. But before we discuss the statement, I just wanted to rewind a little bit, and maybe if you can tell us why this is important, why the Business Roundtable itself is important. Sure. Well, look, the, the Business Roundtable um, is the organization representing American CEOs, um, and, and therefore, you know, rather obviously and self-evidently, a, a significant organization. Um, the reason this is important is, I mean, you, you, I, I assume you don't want a 7,000 or 8,000 word answer to that question. Um, but essentially, for the last 22 years, the Business Roundtable has been guided by a Milton Friedman-esque view of business, which is that its only responsibility, other than acting within the law, is to make money for its shareholders. Um, this, this is a statement of the purpose of the corporation um, that was adopted by the Business Roundtable um, 22 years ago, um, at which time it said expecting boards of directors um, to balance the, difference, the, the, the different priorities of employees, communities, customers, and shareholders was um, untenable, which at the time I thought was the most cowardly thing I had ever heard an organization say about itself. I mean, just this idea that um, people who are paid 
uh, you know, millions of dollars have decades of experience running organizations of their own, um, bring incredible expertise to the table, um, would find it impossible to make decisions that called upon them to um, find trade-offs and win-win solutions and, you know, all the things you would expect them to find, um, was a statement of moral cowardice that I found appalling 22 years ago. And I find it appalling that the business roundtable stuck with it for 22 years. Mm. Not, not only appalling, um, but, but also in its way, completely useless. Um, saying that, you know, it's, it's far too difficult for all these, you know, grizzled veterans of business um, to make tough decisions about stakeholder interests and that they should only focus on shareholder value maximization um, actually answers nothing. Um, you know, first of all, there are clearly cases where taking care of your employees is good in the long term for maximizing value. Um, it isn't always a win-lose situation. And secondly, there's nothing in there that says whether you're doing it for the next quarterly shareholder maximization or whether you're doing it for the long term. And of course, what happened once this statement came out was that everybody assumed that it meant you had to manage quarter by quarter to maximize every single dollar. It led to all kinds of perverse behaviors on business. And worse still, and I'll wrap up in a second, worse still, it became conventional wisdom that this was in fact the only way to run a corporation in america so mm. even if a ceo wanted to do the right thing for some other stakeholder group the conventional wisdom was that he had a legal duty to be a dick yeah sure um and, and one of the things in your story that I found really interesting was you analyzed the events that led to the business roundtable adopting that kind of definition 22 years ago. Um, the, uh, the, the, the sort of prioritization of profit above all else. I think that the way CEO pay became linked um, to equity. Um, I mean, were those the two biggest factors in this shift? Well, I think there were, I, there were a number of things, right? Um, so first of all, I think people like Friedman provided a sort of intellectual balance uh, philosophy here that, um, that, that CEOs could use to give, give themselves color. I think CEOs were under a massive amount of pressure because really some 22 years ago, um, you were you were seeing the the sort of first wave of hostile takeovers and um, the the kind of rapacious capitalism that has become commonplace now. You know, companies that were in in some cases perfectly well run, but not necessarily maximizing every quarter of of, of financial returns, were um, suddenly being victimized. Um, by raiders, um, there, there were you know there, there there were junk bonds out there that allowed you to finance takeovers. There were mm. you know 
the 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 movie Wall Street, which has has maybe not aged as well as One Night Light, captured all of that. But there were other things going on in the political environment too. Um, the the first was that you know Ronald Reagan was extremely successful in um, uh, sort of disempowering the labor movement in America, and organized labor was really the one sort of countervailing force that had the power and influence to check the worst excesses um, that we see now. Uh, and it was, um, you know, disenfranchised under Reagan to, a, to an alarming extent. And the other thing that happened was that Reagan um, eliminated the very highest tax brackets. There was, there was no point, very little point, um, in the 80s in paying your CEOs $200 million a year because anything over the first sort of 10 or 20 million uh, would be taxed at a 90% rate. Um, and, you know, once that went away and you got to keep most of that money, no matter what tax bracket you were in or how much you made, um, you saw CEO pay linked to performance in, 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 in certain ways that obviously... Um, led to a massive disparity between what chief executives could earn and what ordinary workers could earn. And so, you know, there were a number of things going on in the environment that that sort of moved capitalism in America um, towards um, a much more, a, a much, a much less user-friendly um, sort of sort of environment, unless you were a CEO or an institutional investor. And now, of course, we've seen this, this move back, I suppose. Uh, you know, companies like Unilever, um, who've said they're not going to report on a quarterly basis, who said all of their, you know, all of their brands have to, have, uh, have to be built around a purpose rather than just making money. Um, but in terms of the business roundtable and, and, and the CEOs it represents, I'll say something about that because, of course, Unilever is not an American corporation. Yes, it's yes, indeed. Elsewhere, and and that gives it a freedom that it would not have in America. But but there have been there have been American CEOs, um, you know, who have either recognized that, um, you know, social responsibility is not only compatible with good management; it's essential to it. Um, because it builds and, and sustains long-term value. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think CEOs have been, cha uh, you know, CEOs, CEOs are for the most part good people, I think. I, I don't think anybody wakes up this morning saying, you know, screwing over everybody except my shareholders today. And I think creative CEOs, Tim Cook at Apple is a, is a great example, have found ways to push back. So, in terms of the business roundtable and, and the sort of CEOs it represents, um, how influential will this statement really be? I mean, the, the risk, I guess, is that it's just virtue signaling and that it has no real teeth. I mean, there's no actual regulatory enforcement um, linked to this. Yeah, um, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely true. I think that there is certainly a risk um, that this will be perceived as nice words with no action. 
because the reality is that the environment that pushed CEOs to the maximizing shareholder value mantra and away from a more balanced view of the way business should operate. All of those factors are still in place. There are, you know, hedge funds and private equity firms out there um, seeking to, um, you know, take to, to attack and, and launch proxy battles at any company that, you know, takes its eye off the shareholder value ball for, for a moment or two. Um, there's no um, significant labor movement left in America to act as a countervailing balance to, um, to, to big business. Um, you know, there are all kinds of incentives for CEOs to continue to pay themselves massively more than everyone else. Um, the only the only countervailing force that we have out there is this growing sentiment that capitalism isn't working, that, that capitalism and the system we have now is failing um, tens of millions of Americans. And you see it most obviously in um, the fact that millennials now, according to a couple of recent surveys, um, like the idea of socialism, I'm not sure that every, all of them necessarily said share the same notion of what socialism is. Um, but, but like the idea of socialism more than they like the idea of capitalism. They've grown up with a capitalist system that has crushed their parents, um, that has led to rising inequality, um, that, you know, treats human beings as commodities um, to be, you know, harnessed or disposed of at, at whim. Um, and they don't like it. And, um, and that's really the only thing that's happening right now is that business is trying to, I think, soothe those people. Um, but without something more than a mere statement from the business roundtable, um, then, then, you know, it, it seems to me unlikely that anything will change. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think something needs to happen um, beyond, beyond just words on a piece of paper. Um, right. And that's where, and that's where the, the accountable capitalism legislation come, comes in. This is proposed by Elizabeth Warren um, and brings in many measures that would, I, I guess, place a check. And, and really, I, I suppose, um, enforce the words uh, around the, the, the business roundtable statement. Um, do you really think there's an appetite amongst these CEOs for this kind of law, though? So, uh, you know, it, 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 would be, it would be fairly glib of me to say, if they are sincere, then yes, they will embrace the Accountable Capitalism Act because it actually um, provides them with a framework under which they, they can do what they say they want to do. And look, when the Accountable Capitalism Act was introduced, which I think was in, in March of this year, um, I looked at it, and, I'll, I, and I, I understand that this is not a common 
perspective among people, you know, who are involved in the business world. I looked at it and I thought to myself, Elizabeth Warren is the most pro-business candidate that I have seen in my lifetime. That this is, I believe, a good faith effort to repair the damage that has been done to capitalism that has led to the massive collapse in, in trust capital, in um, social cohesion that we've seen over the last 20 years, which is responsible for things like um, Donald Trump. Um, you know, because people are so discontent with the establishment and the way things are being run in America for the benefit of a select few that they were prepared to vote for an obviously insincere authoritarian just because he promised to shake things up and make the elites uncomfortable and without getting into the whole question of the you know Donald Trump being the absolute personification of corrupt capitalist elite um, and, and the dissonance there. I mean, this is what you get when people start to lose faith in the, the ability of the system to help them and to make life tolerable for them, is you get populism and you get extremism and you get um, chaos. And, and so I, I looked at the Affordable Capitalism Act, uh, the Accountable Capitalism Act, excuse me, and I thought this was a recipe for, for stability in business, for accountability in business, and for capitalism that was fit for purpose for the 21st century and ultimately sustainable. Mm. One of the I, things, sorry, uh, the thing I, you know, even, so businesses, this is, this is how the world works, right? You know, doing what we do, we see it all the time. Businesses say they want to make the safest products possible, but they, they hate regulation that forces them to do it. Businesses say they want to take care of their employees, but they fight tooth and nail against any regulations that would force them to take better care of their employees. And the argument is always the same, that we can do it ourselves, that you know, this is just bureaucracy, that, that it, it, it's government intervention in the economy, that it's all of those things and that self-regulation works. I mean, I, it seems to me impossible for anybody to believe that um, if, they, if they go and read for 10 minutes about what's been going on at Boeing this year. But, but this, I, do I expect this to change? Do I expect business to say, thanks, Elizabeth, for coming up with a framework that allows us to do all the things we say we want to do without the hostile takeovers and the you know and 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 the attacks on our business from outside um you know thanks for all your help and support or do i expect them to say no you're imposing on us a structure that's far too rigid and you're creating a lot of you know red tape and bureaucracy honestly the the, the latter seems more likely to me um mm. Yes. And, and, and if that's the case, then yeah, this is a phrase that, that I loathe beyond the ability of words to, to convey. 
but it is in fact what what people mean when they say just PR. <laughs> I think we can use virtue signaling as a better phrase, but but I take your point. Fair enough. Um, is there anything in the I'm going to say affordable capitalism, <laughs> the Accountable yeah. Capitalism Act. Yep. Is there anything in there about um, tax avoidance and corporate tax? I mean, I, I assume there's obviously nothing on personal tax, but is there anything on corporate tax? Um, no, it's it's not. Um, it, it's not about raising taxes. It's. It, I mean, the the core of it. Um, is this idea that companies, you know, and, and I, if you look at the, the Accountable Capitalism Act in the context of American business history, rather than in the context of the last 25 years, it's a remarkably unremarkable document, right? All it essentially says is companies get charters, and they've always operated under charters. Um, those charters essentially give them the right to conduct business. Right now, they're issued by states, but but the idea here is to avoid a race to the bottom um, by making them federal charters for you know companies that have billions of dollars in revenue, which is only actually a few thousand companies, um, and those companies would then be forced to. Um, in order to have a license to operate, which is a very familiar concept to, to PR people, um, in order to have a license to operate, they would need to um, A, um, behave responsibly, and B, um, and this I think is where you're going to get the most pushback, allow um, employees to have a voice in management of the company. So you'd have directors who were elected by employees, not elected by shareholders. And you know, this is a process, co-determination, um, that seems to work imperfectly well in Germany. I was gonna say perfectly well in Germany. The, the, the reality is that you know, German companies don't have the same stock market valuations as American companies necessarily, um, but they do have um, employee representation. And if you look at Germany right now, um, there isn't the discontent with capitalism that you see um, in America. Um, and yes, there are German companies that still manage to find ways to misbehave, Volkswagen being the obvious example. Um, but, um, but there isn't this antagonistic, antagonistic relationship between corporations and society. Um, and, you know, look, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that, that American corporations should just, you know, put their signature at the bottom, bottom of the Accountable Capitalism Act and sign off on it right away. But at the very least, they should be entering into a dialogue about which parts of the act would help and which parts maybe um, should be watered down. But, but it seems to me that it's the best starting point we have to, to make the CEOs accountable for, again, what they said last week they really want. Now, you, you talk a little bit in your, um, in your story about the, the PR bit and what this might mean 
for the public relations industry. Um, there's been a lot of commentary that this is, you know, great news and just, just kind of reiterates the way corporations should be behaving. Um, but it still requires fundamental changes, right? I mean, one of the things you point out is that many companies still treat investors as a separate class of stakeholders. Um, and that surely is not going to help if they're serious about taking all concerns at the same level. Um, okay, well, to, to clarify, I have I, always felt that public relations um, is a single function that should encompass all stakeholders. Um, in other words, it, it's the job of public relations to understand um, and to convey to management what it is that various stakeholders, employees, communities, customers, shareholders expect mm -hmm. from the organization and, um, and, and to provide some balance. Now, obviously, you know, underneath that, um, you need people who are focused on each of those distinct stakeholder groups. So you still need people who are focused on investors. You still need people who are focused on employees. Those jobs don't go away, but they have to be, um, they have to have, if, if you're running your company for the benefit of all stakeholders, they have to have an equal voice and they have to be, um, they have to be balanced by somebody. And what you have right now in most organizations, not all, but most organizations, is an investor relations function that is completely separate from um, employee communications, community relations, um, and, and, and the other stakeholder representative functions. And, and I don't, I've never thought that was healthy. Um, I still don't think it's healthy. I think that, that that would need to be, you know, that would need to be addressed if you were running the company for the benefit of all shareholders, um, for all stakeholders, excuse me. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's then the job of public relations to be the representative within the organization of the different stakeholder groups and also to be the representative to the stakeholder groups of the, of, of the, the organization. And that, I think, obviously becomes even more mission critical if maintaining the goodwill of all of those stakeholders is a more significant priority than it is right now. Mm. What are the implications for the CSR department, given that there are probably broad swathes of the industry that that still think social purpose involves planting a lot of trees. Um, look, do, if you're asking, if you're asking me, do I think that there will there will still be a lot of company? I, I mean, we maybe shouldn't be so so jokey about planting a lot of no, trees. No, trees are really way. good, by the way. I'm not saying uh, that's a bad be, thing be, because you know, Apple Apple yesterday um, I think became the the first company to sort of offer. Um, offer support for um, the Brazilian rainforest and reforestation and all of that stuff, and I, I and I and I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't mock that or, or discount. No, we're definitely uh, pro tree. Um, yes, yes, mm. yes. Um, but um, you know, I, I think I think companies um, companies can stop being defensive about or apologetic for their CSR. Um, 
you know, I, I, yeah. I, 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 I'll come back to the, to the Friedman quote, you know, because it, it really has done, and, and this, by the way, is why words on a piece of paper are not entirely irrelevant, because the Friedman quote was words on a piece of paper, was words in the New mm. York Times mm. back when the New York Times mattered. Um, but it was, it, was, it was still just words on a piece of paper, but it changed over a 10 or 15 year period everything about the way American business operates. Um, but, but, you know, there, there's always been this, this sort of social responsibility, and companies don't do social responsibility um, because they're nice and altruistic and want to give shareholder money to good causes. They do it because they believe that it has value. And I believe that it has value. I believe that it drives um, sustainable relationships between the organization and its stakeholders, and I think that's important. And I think over time, those relationships make a company more money than, than, than being, you know, than existing purely to extract as much value from its employees and its communities and the environment as it can, and then give all that value over to shareholders. And I think, you know, most CEOs recognize that. That's why they do CSR, that it's good for the long-term interests of the company. Um, and, but I also feel like every now and again, somebody pops their head up and makes the old Friedman argument and says, why a company, you know, why a company's being, um, you know, so nice to gay people, or why a company is getting involved in political issues, or why a company is doing all this stuff that isn't their fundamental purpose. They should just be focused on, you know, taking our money and giving it to their shareholders. And do I think those people will ever shut up? No. Do I think that this will give CEOs a little bit more cover when they ignore those people? Yeah, maybe. Is it not weird, though, that we're living in this kind of time of, of such polarization? Um, and indeed, the governments, for example, of the US and the UK um, are, are today led by people who, you know, you, you would describe as um, unfettered <laughs> by traditional restraints on them. Um, uh, on capitalism uh, and, and perhaps reason as well. But given that, do you not think that a statement like this from the Business Roundtable just has less chance of succeeding? I guess, I, I mean, I guess it depends on what, I guess it depends on what, right? And what the root causes of what we're seeing are. And, and so, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, you come back to is, it, it, and, and let's focus on Trump because we're talking about American capitalism primarily because I think it, it's the clearest way in which this argument can be made. So, you know, ever since the election of Trump, I have had discussions and debates with friends and colleagues in the business world about um, whether what we were seeing was pure unadulterated racism or whether what we were seeing was this anguished cry of 
disenfranchisement and, and economic disenfranchisement um, by people who feel that um, the system no longer works for them, that the system is actually rigged against ordinary working class or, or, or what we would call in the States, a, a, a middle class Americans um, in favor of a handful of CEOs and political elites. I don't think it's necessarily an either or question, right? I think that what we're seeing is um, that massive economic disenfranchisement, making it incredibly easy for people who want to divide us to find ways to divide us. Um, and, um, and, you know, I think there are a lot of CEOs who recognize that. There are a lot of CEOs who recognize that we're seeing the breakdown of institutions. We're seeing people lose confidence. Um, you know, the, 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 the Edelman trust barometer, um, is not an outlier. It's, it, it's a, a record of just how little faith Americans have in, in any of their institutions, whether it's politicians, the media, or um, big business. There's this feeling that all of these groups uh, have in, in some way conspired to create a world that works really well for them and horribly for everybody else. And in that environment, it's incredibly easy to pick out scapegoats. Um, it's incredibly easy to turn people against each other. I mean, this is the history of the world, right? Any time that, you know, that, that, that a whole group of people feel that, that nothing they do matters, that, that then, then you turn you can turn people against other people. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I don't think, think it's particularly surprising. And I, I, and I do think it's kind of encouraging that, that CEOs have recognized that maybe something has to change if the ecosystem in which they've been able to flourish for the last hundred years is to continue. Because the alternative is for greater instability and greater chaos and greater tension and greater destruction. And that's not good for anybody. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of enlightened self-interest in what we're seeing here. Mm. As there should be, I think. Otherwise, I don't think any of this would work. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't think this is, I don't think this is CEOs saying, hey, how can we make ourselves look good this year? Mm. Um, and I, you know, I do think, I do think that there is a sincerity about it. I do think that there's a self-interest about it. But I, you know, what I hope is that they don't think that they've done enough mm. just by putting out a statement. And just very quickly before we finish, what's your take on the companies that didn't sign up for this? Well, look, there, I mean, some of them, a great many of them, are not publicly traded companies, so it, it frankly doesn't um, doesn't pertain to them 
directly. Um, and look, I, I, I'm not expect, I, I wouldn't expect unanimity, right? Um, there are going to be some companies who um, feel like uh, that fiduciary And I, you know, I, I wouldn't expect, you know, everybody to be on board. Um, but you know, the fact that you have 180 major corporations is is not nothing. It's pretty significant. Um, and you know, and, and and again, I, you know, we say this all the time in our business, and 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 I'm not sure that it's quite the. Um, achievement that we think it is, but at least it starts a conversation. You know, this is a this is a discussion that now will be taking place in every boardroom in America. How do we, you know, do we think this is the right thing to do? Uh, the conversation. Okay, now we've done this. How do we fake it enough that people don't realize that we're full of, you know, stuff? Um, I mean, even those conversations have some value. Um, yeah. There'll be yeah. dissent in boardrooms, and there'll be this, but at least there's a conversation taking place. I think that has to be a good thing. Um, you know, I, I, I of, and because I would like to, to talk about this, I'm sort of more interested in some of the companies that did sign. Uh, you know, it, it's the the fact of the matter is that. Um, you know, Johnson and Johnson is credited um, with having been the primary author of this. Mm, quite a um, quite a week it's in having. Week, in a week when it was um, hit with a five hundred million dollar um, settlement for its role in the opioid crisis. Mm. Um, you know, how do we how how do we reconcile or balance those two things um you know the 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 opioid crisis is um in many ways the ultimate example of what we're talking about an organized uh, an industry or a segment of an industry that was so focused on um making as much money as it could um that it was prepared to, um, at the at the very least, enable, and at the very worst, encourage, a, an enormous public health crisis, um, and and you know the fact that one of the companies at the center of that is also one of the companies driving the change that we've been talking about for the last forty minutes. Oh, that's that's complicated. <laughs> mm. Okay, well, Paul, thank you so much. I think you've got to go out and walk your dogs. I uh, do. <laughs> so, one of, one, of, one of them just jumped up on the sofa here to make that point. Right. Yeah. Well, he's not waiting around for the business roundtable or otherwise. Um, thanks very much. Uh, do read the story. It's on our website. It's behind the paywall, uh, but it's worth every cent uh, and we'll be back soon thank you you've been listening to the echo chamber brought to you by the homes report and produced by marketeers sponsored by the bullet group 
putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.